Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Thanks to all of our Team Human supporters who get the ad-free version of the show, as well as access to our Discord, monthly salons, and live events. Until the end of the summer, you can still get a full Team Human membership for $2 a month. And you can keep that rate as an original charter member of the team for as long as this show is happening. After September 1st, the lowest monthly rate for new team members will be $5 a month. Our next Team Human Salon will be on Tuesday, August 1st at noon New York time. That's 9 a.m. in California and 5 p.m. in the UK. That's the Team Human Salon on our Discord, August 1st, 12 p.m. New York time. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, where we challenge the reality tunnels we've chosen and explore alternative explanations for what the heck is going on here. There is no truth too sacred to be challenged, no story too absurd to entertain. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the author of Chapel Perilous, the very first book-length biography of Robert Anton Wilson, my friend Gabriel Kennedy. And that's what he did. That's what he was so brilliant at doing, you know, and that's what's so inspiring about him as a writer, as a thinker, that he is able to do that constantly, to break open your brain. Gabe is going to walk us through the Chapel Perilous and remind us of just how relevant and essential the work of Robert Anton Wilson is to a world on the brink of conspiratorial madness. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all hilarious things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Never has there been a society in greater need of Robert Anton Wilson than our own right now. As Bob would no doubt be explaining to us if he were alive, 
Our problem is not that we don't know what to believe, whom to trust, or how to respond. It's that we think we do. We are certain what the words and pictures on our screens mean, whom they indict, whom they absolve, and which side's story they tell. It's not only a dangerous way to live, it's entirely less fun. It's actually amusing to me now that I was nervous the first time I met Robert Anton Wilson back in the early 90s. To me, he was not only a counterculture legend, the author of Cosmic Trigger and the Illuminatus Trilogy, initiator of Operation Mindfuck and Pope of the Discordian Church, but an authority figure and role model. I was on my first book tour, gushing with my optimistic appraisals of the early cyberdelic movement, when I noticed him just sitting there in the front row. I had actually modeled my talks on Bob's style of lateral thinking, comparing and contrasting perspectives while never quite committing to one. It was the space between them, the ambiguity itself that mattered. But now that I was in front of Raw, that's what we called him, Robert Anton Wilson, of Raw himself, I became obsessed with the possibility that I was doing it wrong. The master was in the house. And... Afterwards, he invited me back to his apartment for a beer, and I remember waiting for his pronouncement, his words of wisdom. But he was just Bob. Everything was surprisingly low stakes. He had no pronouncements on what I was saying. There was no right or wrong. He simply enjoyed the spirit of inquiry, the questions, the wonder, the confusion, and the enthusiastic pursuit of doubt. As a role model, Bob offered neither the certainty of today's alt-right, non-castrated male authority figures, nor the self-assuredness of the technocratic left's new deals. He may have been amused by the playful ingenuity of the meme wars and fake news, but he would have shrugged sadly at the belligerent intentionality fueling it all. He modeled uncertainty as a form of play— I've often worried, right here, in fact, on this show, about whether Operation Mindfuck worked too well. He and his colleagues' effort to destabilize America's consensus reality in the 1960s through pranks and confusion, like levitating the Pentagon and publishing conspiracy stories about Jackie Kennedy walking in on Lyndon Johnson sexually abusing the exit wound in JFK's head when his body was being transported back to D.C., Operation Mindfuck sought to suggest that anything anyone in the counterculture was doing at any time might just be part of an elaborate prank. This put outsiders in a difficult position. The only safe assumption was that anything a hippie was doing was part of Operation Mindfuck, some sort of trick or game. But because this could only lead to paranoia, one had to assume that whatever they were doing was probably harmless. They were, after all, just pranks. For their part, the counterculture agitators hoped the assumption that they were just jesters would keep them safe from any real persecution. Or prosecution, I guess. But for Bob, Operation Mindfuck was less a means to an end 
than an end in itself. It was a way of training people to embrace just how weird and irresolvable things are. Like Art Bell's interviews with UFO abductees and Sasquatch witnesses on his Coast to Coast radio show, Bob's inquiries were less conspiracy theory than conspiracy hypothesis. The point was never to figure out what was actually true, but to experience the state of mind engendered by one belief or another. The beliefs themselves, the various scenarios about aliens, magical numbers, global cabals, they were all less important than the way they created new lenses and mindsets through which to understand the world. Most importantly, none of them are true, or all of them are true, or some may be more true than others, depending on the circumstances or even the believer. The creative, magical potentials unleashed by conspiratorial musing was the very opposite of the self-righteous certainty and call to arms asserted by today's fake news mongers. Our young incels and test creoles, incapacity for ambiguity, and their desperate need for a male authority figure to follow are precisely what Raw's rite of passage was intended to redirect. But the path of resolute ambiguity, life after passing through the Chapel Perilous, it isn't easy. Being that open, being willing to suppose almost anything, and then being willing to let go of that supposition, that's a tough life path. Even when there's a real life with money woes, health concerns, family troubles, and downright tragedy to navigate at the same time. Yes, Bob sure tried. And while he may not ever wish to be considered a role model, he did demonstrate how to hang on to a a fluid sense of reality while simultaneously confronting greater challenges than any of us should ever have to face. It can be done. And today, we're going to hear how. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Today is a big one for me. I mean, there's really no one I can think of more seminal to the Team Human Project than Robert Anton Wilson, philosopher king and pope of Operation Mindfuck, the Discordian Church, author of Cosmic Trigger and co-author of the Illuminatus Trilogy, my friend and mentor until his death in 2007, 
and a constant source of inspiration and a touchstone for reassurance to this day. It's about time that someone tried to chronicle the life and thought crimes of this futurist, psychologist, and agnostic mystic. And I'm thrilled that someone who once considered me his mentor has not only risen to the task, but honored me by asking me to write the introduction, which I read as my monologue today. Team Human, please welcome one of our consummate utility players, the ever-talented, endlessly energetic, and increasingly wise soul, Gabriel Kennedy. It's good to see you after all this time. Yes, indeed. Likewise. You kind of you grew up. You look like an adult now. You're. I think it's just the part of my hair. It's parted differently. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these team human conversations are not like podcasts, or maybe they are like podcasts, and I just didn't realize this is what podcasts are. But it's not like some NPR, like I'm Terry Gross interviewing. Who's that to me, Gabriel? About your experiences, huh? but. I really started it because I was trying to model a kind of a conversational jazz, mm. if you will. Not conversation as performance, but what is sort of intellectual, spiritual, emotional intimacy with another thinking person trying to promote anomalous behavior in an in a <laughs> overly conformist reality. So, dude, so I when when I met you, I felt like you were still on the on the youth side of life and i was over the crest into the adult side of life like you were in your 20s and i was in my like late 30s or something and you were kind of rapping and still you know able to live off whatever you could scrape by and <laughs> and i loved your stuff you're making videos as propanon and and rapping the truth at a time when not that many white people were even allowed to do it if you know yeah, what I mean? Sure. To, to wrap the knowledge. Definitely. I mean, we'll do a needle drop on, let's do a needle drop on one of your, one of your tunes from that era. Which one should we uh, sample? Maybe for this one, Ayahuasca Metropolis. I think that's a good one. All right. So here, yeah. everybody listen to Ayahuasca Metropolis, a few, few bars of this thing. Consciousness shining in void, a great radiance, radiating stadiums to standard room capacity. After me, the path will be drawn upon a map, while the fool stack food stamps and add their own text. Perfectly, periods of packaging facts Percolate, impersonate the truth to manufacture whack I'll stand back, stand tall, stand ground Watch the wind shake down from the country to metropolis Rise to the top, cause I know where the bottom is On the body politic, apply the acupressure Meditate for years, all about the elders' lectures Step into the stage with the tongue of a sage I let myself get out the way, then I study the waves It's like that, a matter of fact, beyond material Some speak ethereal Real supplerative crap First step upon the path Past the neophyte status Yeah, fuck that bullshit Overstand, boom, bang And you react with thunderclap So that's the rap The great chain of being Of dependent origination A pan in the past Tracing my generation Hands down We come to elevate the sound With the hand-to-hand program To get your hands up We are the universal The Milati So just break Break Yeah, this logo's for those with the ear to the street Just like the need of the wax is so tuned to be Cause the people of the earth work in serving silent ways So, that's who you were, or you are, I mean, but that's who I encountered And then, we find out we got all these similar interests, right? Like, you know, psychedelics, and Timothy Leary, and Terrence McKenna, and of course, 
the great Robert Anton Wilson. And what happened? Did you you just decided someone's got to do a biography of this dude? Yeah, like pretty much. I knew that I, I wanted to write something about Bob for a very long time. And then just no one has written a biography yet. So you might as well be the first one to do something, you know. And But, you know, I think that a biography contextualizes Bob's ideas. And I think that was necessary right now, you know. Yeah. So I just wanted to just do that. Just make this contribution real quick to, you know, a scholastic unofficial like wing of some colleges being developed right now about like Robert Anton Wilson studies, mm. you know, it, it's happening. So Exactly. Right alongside Taylor Swift studies and zombie studies. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, maybe more important even. Yeah, we'll see. But so as long as we're on it, I'm interested in the journey, right? When you first said you wanted to do it and I knew you as this kind of rapper guy, I'm like, oh, good the fuck luck. It's hard to publish a book. It's hard to do a whole legitimate biography of a whole human being and it's a big difficult life and he had already written cosmic trigger but what was the story by which sort of the evolution of the project did you contact christina his daughter first to see like if they would authorize it what how did it go well it went like i had a conversation with an editor at a some major publisher and I said, hey, man, I can write. <laughs> I have all these articles and I've written some things about Robert Anton Wilson. Does that sound cool? And he was like, that's awesome. Yes, 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 yes. And so it just happened like that. And so I, I got this deal. <laughs> well, I, I got the interest for the deal and the guy was awesome. He just kept saying like, hey, man, take your time, take your time. Mm-hmm. And so that was the real motivation to... I don't want to say like will transform in a way or just evolve as a writer because yeah, I was a rapper and stuff like that. But like, man, I, I'm a writer, bro. Like I right. always, I listened to a bunch of hip hop, but I also, when I really turned on, you know, I read a lot of Henry Miller and to me, he's mm. like a rapper, you know? Right. So it made <laughs> sense to me to evolve like that. But that when this deal came about in a way, it was just the motivation to stay focused, to stay on it. You know, it took the plunge to say, I am this, I am a writer, and I'll take whatever comes Mm. with it, whatever it takes, this is what I want to do. And I just felt like, I read so much Bob that I was like, dude, this has just got to be it. I have to do something around, about Bob and around whatever he was talking about. Right. So can you share who was the, can you share who the editor sure, was? Because yeah, yeah. that wasn't the one who stayed till the end, <laughs> no, right? No. right? It was Mitch Horowitz, right? Shout, our good friend. Shout out He's to been Mitch. on twice of the show. He's like the only one who's been on more than oh, once. Oh, nice! It's man. great. Yeah, yeah he had a, he, and he was running Tarcher Press at the time. Yes, there's the the at part of Penguin that did like weird book. They did like Timothy Leary's flashbacks and and all that like uh, good Crowley stuff. And they were kind of almost like an in-house Samuel Weiser kind of press of Penguin. And at, with Mitch Horowitz, who we all know now, imagine that dude at the helm, an unrealized Mitch Horowitz, right? Mm-hmm. Doing everything for everybody else. But then, you know, just just... 
you know, he was growing inside, yeah. he was germinating <laughs> into, into what he is. Right. So he was a full on supporter. Then he left or the torture changed or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then were you like out on the street? It was some of that. It was like a, a confluence of, of these of, of events. <laughs> like, I think that he was ready to move on. Mm. I think that also being a first time writer and, and just kind of feeling like I'm teaching everything to myself. I didn't mm -hmm. study literature in college. I, I just <laughs> read a lot, right? And um, yeah. so while I handed in a quote unquote finished, you know, I fulfilled the contract of getting a book done in a year, but <laughs> I made a, a choice for the first chapter that was a biography from first person point of view of, of Bob. And I honestly think that that might've been I think that he might, he probably looked at that and was like, oh, this is a little too close. This is too first person. It's not complete. Because the book quickly transitioned after the first chapter into a third person right. perspective, which is what it is now. And I, of course, later on corrected the first chapter or, or rewrote it. You know, I wouldn't say corrected because I thought it was pretty dope. Right. I mean, and there's a tradition of that, you know, like, like Timothy Leary's autobiography begins from the perspective of the sperm, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> of the sperm that made him. So it's like, there's a tradition of that in the psychedelic literature, you know, or even regular, you know, like Dutch, this biography of Ronald Reagan was written in the first person by just some dude. So, you know, it's been done. And I understand, and you only did it at the beginning. But anyway, it was a little alienating, I guess, yeah. especially to the, the post-Mitch editor who wasn't the one in love with Bob and you and the project to begin with. Yeah, it was, it was and it's all good, man, because yeah. it was... The, honestly, I needed way more time than than a year to really dig mm. into Bob and yeah. and like it started like Mitch was super into the things that I was showing him until <laughs> that first chapter and yeah. then um but I I dude you got to learn you have to learn you got to be humble yeah it, it was a hard moment I was like oh god I lost this book deal with the yeah. huge book publisher and I to tell you the truth. <laughs> My first book got canceled too. Siberia. Oh, I didn't know that. Life in the Trenches of, of Hyperspace, my first book. You know, and the story I tell people, which is true, and it was the first half of the letter, was we think that the um, internet's going to be over by 1993 when your book's <laughs> supposed to come out, right? Because they thought it was like CB radio that they had bought the next, like, you know, breaker, breaker. All right, now it's internet. But the second half of that rejection letter was. And your book sucks. Oh. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was that, that I, I did a lot of rewriting for it. But the second half of that letter was, you know, you're just sharing facts with us. You know, that's not strung together. There's no cohesive argument. There's no through line. We don't know the people. You know, so there was all that other kind of first time nonfiction writer issues yes. with the book as well. And it's and thank God, you know, thank God that first book didn't come out because um I learned a lot in that next year and a half. Yeah, totally. It's a great book. Yeah. I love yeah. Siberia. I think that's a great book. No, oh, thanks. Yeah. And Bob, that's when I met. That's when I met Bob, was uh, because of that book. I was on book tour mm -hmm. for that book at and Capitola Book Cafe, and in the front friggin' row, there's Robert Anton Wilson, Ralph Abraham, Nina Graboy, I Rudy Rucker, was, and I'm like. <laughs> ah. Uh, you know, I'm just like, I'm speaking to them. Right. They're sitting, listening to me. He's like, let's, let's turn this around as quickly as possible. And afterwards he's like, Hey Doug, want to come over for a beer? You know, that Bob, Bob way. And he walks me around the corner to his house and, and you know, his wife is there and he gives me a beer and we sit down and it was just, you know, 
he was a relative yeah. from then on. That's awesome. You know, that way he had. Yeah. And so you're, you then, you found what? This, what's that? Strange Attractor Press in the UK became your main yes. home. And they were weird. I mean, they're weird one. They do like, <laughs> they do a, they have a Crowley book. They have psychedelics books. They do a Roy Christopher, who's, I got to have him on this, on this show. He's wonderful. They do Austin Osmond's um, tarot book I'm looking is in there. I mean, they're just do, uh, wow, wonderful stuff. So you found them. Yes. And you hooked up with Christina too, so it's like kind of official, like a loved, if not authorized, because he's not alive. It's it's an approved of. It's embraced by the family, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, but you played yeah. a great part in that. You basically gave me Christina's email. This oh. was very early on in the in the process. <laughs> so when I had the original right. deal, I mean, she was really after that email with you. She was the first person I hit up, and then mm. for about a year and a half, about we talked like often and she told me so many amazing things you know and then mm. the next part of the book became how do i make it more objective than just christina's take right. you know because she's like the family i mean just being around bob must make your mind work better because all of the kids i've spoken to all three of them now all three surviving children of, of bob and arlen and uh they just have such great recall Mm. I'm shot. I'm like, wow, like you must all have photographic memories. So, so many details I've received from her. And so we were, we were talking for a while and then I just kept moving with the book, kept doing interviews. And then a strange attractor kind of came on the page, but this was, or entered the scene. This was a while after the, so I was just kind of free floating for a while. I had no publisher. I had right. nothing. Things were pretty chaotic all over the map personal life and, and the world. And, mm. um, but I just knew that like this book was going to be dope. I'm doing a lot of good work. I'm doing a lot of good research and someone will come along and strange attractor. I'm so happy with them. I think, yeah, they do. You know, they remind me a lot of ways of like, you know, the rapid eye books, mm -hmm. you know, from back in the day. And like, they're the books that you'd find in like the basement of like St. Mark's books, you know, next to like some moon right. panics books and some new Falcon <laughs> books, you know? So I was like, this is it. Right. And then I saw that Eric, Davis put out his book with them. And I was like, this is great. Another right. writer, Adam Go-Rightly, recommended that maybe hit them up. And, and Go-Rightly wrote a, you know, this, a lot of books about the Discordians. So I took his word. And then I hit them up. And um, Mark and Jamie over there, super cool, really nice guys. And it turns out that Mark, he'd already wrote a book and then did this great documentary called Mirage Men which is all about disinformation agents within the UFO community. Mm. And that blew my mind. But I found out later, he was also at the Disinfo conference, Mark Pilkington. He interviewed right. Kenneth Anger on stage that night. Oh, wow. At Disinfocon 1999, whatever that was. Yeah. I think it's yeah. 2000. I think it was th 2000. Yeah. yeah. It's it was before 9-11. I remember that. It was like the ultimate pre 9-11 moment of maximum possibility before the, the bad trip or whatever that was right. began. But yeah, for people who don't remember, it was a uh, disinfo was a uh, uh, Richard Metzger's website and he did this great 
conference convention that Robert Anton Wilson was like the last speaker, but he had Kenneth Anger and Grant Morrison and Doug Rushkoff. God, oh, me, <laughs> me, yeah. Um, uh, 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 Joe Coleman. I mean, it was a, a crazy, wonderful event. And yeah, and it was really, it's what gathered, really gathered the tribes together in a really different way. So that's great. So he was there interviewing Kenneth Anger, who just passed mm-hmm. a month or two ago. I mean, which actually, I'm surprised he made it that long. because He was old when I met him then. Yes. I was thinking, wow. <laughs> yeah, he was in his 90s, so I think, bless. when he passed away, right? Yeah. Yeah, great occult filmmaker, or the original kind of occult filmmaker. If you haven't seen his stuff, you take a look. This is is wild. So you found them, and then and they're associated with MIT of all things, which is like such a funny, wonderful. Bob would love it. Yeah. Imprimatur in the U.S. The the publishing partner of Strange Attractor is MIT Press. So here you are with a book coming out about Robert Anton Wilson on MI fucking T Press, which is just. It doesn't get better than that. He would love it. Agreed. And for me, there's so much to say about this. I mean, first off, as you're talking about your experience doing it and writing, you know, for no money, no contract, whatever, and making ends meet and going through hard times, it reminds me a lot of the story you tell in the book, which is a story that he doesn't quite really tell himself so much in uh, Cosmic Trigger, which is how broke he is so much of the time, raising a family in San Francisco, doing whatever he can to make ends meet. You know, I know people sometimes will say, oh, I don't like Robert Wilson. I heard he wrote for Playboy magazine, and they're chauvinist. And And it's like, Dude, I mean, first they paid, and second, they were the only ones who were willing to write, to to, to let him write about, like, life extension, (laughs) intelligence increase, and space migration. I mean, he was writing crazy shit, wasn't he? He was indeed, yeah, man. He, um, it's really funny, though, like, Bob was one of those voices of criticism towards Hugh Hefner before he got hired. (laughs) Wow. He, he, uh, because the story went that, uh, A.C. Spektorsky, the uh, famed uh, second-in-command at Playboy and editor and writer, reached out to Paul Krasner uh, around 1965 and said, hey, man, this guy you got writing over there, Robert Anton Wilson, I like him. Will you you know, send him in? And Krasner's story was that one particular article got uh, Spektorsky's attention, and this was when uh, Bob lambasted Hugh Hefner in like a 1961 article, and it was called <laughs> Hugh Hefner. The article is either called Hugh Hefner, I think it was Hugh Hefner is a virgin, right? And uh, <laughs> Hefner had just put out some kind of um, editorial or an interview for The Realist talking about sociopolitical things. And Bob just kind of lambasted him, kind of like how people go in on Elon Musk today. You know, like, you think you know something? Like, what are you talking about? Right. um, So Bob just went in on this guy. And so that's what Krasner said. Spektorsky read and was like, yo, we, we, we want Bob on the team. But Bob later on said that it was an article that he wrote about his time when he worked for like these Playboy knockoffs. This publisher named Myron Foss, who was sort of like this legendary, I guess, low culture is one way to put it, publisher, right? Like put out girly mags, UFO magazines, a lot of knockoffs of like big things. So he put out like a knockoff of the National Enquirer and he called it the National Uh Mirror. 
you know, and Bob and maybe Arlen ended up writing for this guy for like a year or something in New York. And um, Bob was made editor of multiple magazines at once. And uh, he said, like, the name of that article was, um, I think, um, Confessions of a Schlock schlockmeister or mm. you know and that was also put out in the realist and uh so bob said that uh spektorsky read that article and saw that he had experience basically working with pinup magazines and stuff like that so like a lot of things with bob there's a couple different stories and this was part of the thing of doing all this research is like digging into he's right but then there are just some things that like he just gets dates and times wrong <laughs> Sometimes with, his, with his personal life right even with his own with his own life i mean and that's kind of where i kind of want to engage with you about two sides of bob's work and life that are i think really important and relevant for us today you know what we could call and they intersect the kind of the serious side which is you know what is it to journey through you know the title of your book chapel perilous what he called the chapel perilous to have that experience, that whatever that, to go through the spiritual crucible. And then this place he ended up on the other side, which is the intellectual hijinks and pranksterism and Discordian church and Operation Mindfuck. I mean, so maybe we start with the serious. I mean, a lot of people ask me, you know, whenever they interview me about Bob or my experience, oh, so, so what is, tell me, what is the Chapel Perilous? And it's like every time I ended up, I end up saying something really different, which is probably really appropriate to the Chapel Perilous, but because you're going to have to do it um, pretty soon when you release your book. I mean, what is the Chapel Perilous? And what did, what did Bob mean? That's a great question. And, and I completely empathize <laughs> with the answers different every time. Well, it's a term that he borrowed from two sources, probably T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. And uh, then T.S. Eliot borrowed the concept from British folklorist named Jesse Weston, who published a book in the 20s, which I forgetting the name of that book at the moment. But the subject of the book, though, that Weston wrote was all about the King Arthur stories and basically the Grail romances and the search for the Holy Grail. And um, she looked at um, the the poems, obviously the epic poems from like the 1500s, 1400s, all about King Arthur and the search for the Holy Grail. And uh, what uh, Weston ended up doing was determining that these stories were all about like an initiation, but not just being initiated and going through the journey. It's about preparing for an initiation. And so oftentimes the heroes and heroines of these grail romances, they're looking for the Holy Grail. They're on the quest, but along the way they get caught in a chapel and some enclosed space, and it's possessed. It's a haunted house. All types of scary things happen, like dead bodies floating from the ceiling. The walls are bleeding. Some huge, scary hand comes through the walls, and everything you could think of about like a haunted house. And so then the task at hand becomes the hero or heroine has to transform the chapel, basically bring it back to life, cleanse it, of the evil spirits, right? And then they get to move on, right? Um, and then, of course, another story of it is that there's like a seductress or seductor in the chapel as well. Anything to take the hero or heroine off their journey towards attaining this, this grail. But again, Weston says that these stories should be read as um, 
they were used as like rites, you know, as some sort of initiation rites for people back in the day. So that's Weston's interpretation. But T.S. Eliot loved it so much, he incorporated it into the wasteland and he called it like the perilous chapel, right? And then Bob, of course, loved Eliot and Ezra Pound edited the wasteland and Bob was all about Ezra mm. Pound's poetry and stuff. And he just, you know, Bob, man, he was so good at grabbing something and making it his own. And so he took that term and pretty much internalized it more, but almost keeps it in line with Weston's perspective. Like for Bob entering Chapel Perilous, it became a psychological state where one, at you know, that old Zen phrase, like, you know, at first mm. the mountain is the mountain and then the mountain is not the mountain and finally the mountain is the mountain. That's pretty much what the journey through Chapel Perilous seems to be because it being a psychological state filled with meaningful coincidences, it's your own personal journey to figure something out or attain something, right? But it's different than like some banal sort of quest because things that appear to be supernatural, you don't know what's causing these crazy things to happen in your life, you know? And he, of course, like studied causality, like up the wazoo. He was all about always studying what's the cause of things, right? And so for him, it was a sort of psychological state that he had to journey through to get to the other side. Right. And the way you're describing it, I mean, what it makes me think of, at least in Bob's case, it's that like weird stuff and weird coincidences and supernaturally things and conspiracy theory provoking phenomena are occurring all around him. Like the number 23 keeps showing up in all these coincidental ways. Then stuff's going on in space and the planet Sirius and then and numbers and ages and cosmic events. And it's like, this is too coincidental to be true or to not be real on some level. And that's why what you say when he goes into causality. So he's looking for, well, what's the scientific possibility? What's the mathematical possibility? What's the supernatural possibility? What's the aliens? What's the spiritual? What's if it's God? What if the Bible's right? What if it's the pyramids? What if it's... And he goes through, and that's part of what what he did in his work and what he describes in his Cosmic Trigger book is he puts on like different hats. I'm going to be Professor Bob. I'm going to be Cynic Bob. So sometimes he's like Amazing Randy, believing nothing at all, like Richard Dawkins. It's all materialism. There's nothing here. And sometimes he's friggin', you know, uh, Naomi Wolf, you know, ready to say that Bill Gates can put (laughs) nanobots, you know, in our brains through 5G towers. And he treats them all, uh, I mean, it seems like part of the Chapel Perilous journey involves treating them all with equal respect for at least a time. Mm. It's, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, I'm going to go walk down this a little bit like Art Bell would. I've been talking a lot about him lately when he would listen to a caller and just be, "Uh uh-huh. So then Chupacabra said, what to you? (laughs) And then, you know, it just take it and just take it all. Take it all as if, you know, everything, as if everything is true. Keep the, as Bob would say, keep the lasagna flying over the, you know, entertain those possibilities. So there's this time in the Chapel Perilous where you do that. But then how did you get out on the other side? I mean, what, do you pass through it or do you just get used to it and you live there for the rest of your life? 100%. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, too. I mean, when the way he presents it in Cosmic Trigger, the volume one, he does get out the other side, because he's a great writer, and he understands the hero's journey, and and you need an ending, (laughs) you know, like, uh, and he's so giving, man, because he gave 
his buddy Leary the sort of grand finale in a way, you know, that in, at the end of Cosmic Trigger, Leary is the guy that provides the final jewel of knowledge to to signify, hey, I made it through the other side. And which is, if anyone gives you any negativity, you just take it and you give it positivity right back, you know? Easier said than done, my friend. Well, and easier said than done for Robert Anton Wilson, who at the height of his both spiritual and financial journey and threat, and after all this stuff he put his family through in order to stay true to this quest and not take a stupid job and and keep writing about what he cared about, at the peak of all that, his young daughter, an angelic, innocent presence, is brutally, violently murdered. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's going to yank you out of the chapel right away. I mean, it, uh, something like that could have killed many a man. I don't know how I would live through that. I mean, and that's, you know, what happens at the end of that section of his book and his life is, yeah, I can understand that. And you turn to say, okay, let's go to the wisdom of my elder or, you know, and let's, but it yanked him out of the chapel, didn't it? Well, my argument in the book in a way is that Chapel Perilous is a fitting metaphor for life, especially these days. Mm. And Bob being yeah. an antenna of the race, if you will, the human race, his whole life was anticipatory for everything that's going on now in some ways. Yeah. And uh, so how do you know you're out of Chapel Perilous? I mean, that's a great question. How do you really know? Right. It's like asking, do you ever come down off your first trip or do you just get used to seeing the world that way? You know? Good point. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because I think it's just sort of he recontextualized things. And a, a good illustration of this is where he basically chose the metaphor of the puka, you know, the six foot tall white rabbit from Kerry, Ireland, who manifested to him while he was watching Harvey, the movie with James Stewart, you know, about a six foot tall talking ra rabbit from Kerry, Ireland, uh -huh. and sort of just settled on this is all kind of ridiculous, isn't it? You know, he settled on a more materialistic notion that his left brain was talking to his right brain. And this is what was causing sort of these feelings of getting interstellar ESP communications from, from Sirius or from some, you know, Sufi wheelhouse from Afghanistan or something like that. Right. He went into that kind of Julian James breakdown of the bicameral mind. This is a an intercerebral phenomenon. It's a, both quantum and biological mechanical at the same time, creating this experience for my being moving through time and space. I mean, this is something I, I do. I, I wonder about, did Bob make it through the Chapel Perilous mm -hmm. in a way? And, and uh, like, it, well, I guess it all comes down to what's the notion of the grail? What is the Holy Grail in your life? You know, what is this about? You know, because did Bob attain a communion with the Holy Grail? Did, like at the end of Indiana Jones Part Three, did yeah. he get to drink from the <laughs> cup? You know, and um, I mean, I guess people have to read the book to find out. You know, yeah. I mean, it's interesting as a Catholic, you know, and I think a lot about Leary in this regard. He put the Holy Grail after death. He made it about the Bardos. You know, that it's the white light. So it's when you die and you go through the Bardos, and that's sort of a chapel perilous the way it's described. There are all these temptations and good things and bad things, but you kind of have to keep your eye on the prize, stay on the path, go to the light, and you make it. And if you don't, you fall back in and you, you get reincarnated again. I mean, that's sort of where it seems to me I don't have a grail in life. It's so one-pointed. It's so Aristotelian. And I, don't, I, I wouldn't think Bob did either. But 
what I want to get to is, so he had all those experiences and where he went with it in his work was toward what we could call as an embracing concept, what we would call Operation Mindfuck, which is all of this stuff, like the Discordian church where everybody's a pope and you believe everything or nothing, to the books, the Illuminatus trilogy, which is like every single conspiracy theory in the world you ever thought of all wrapped up into one giant global world order thing, which is both true, but not. I mean, it's also, it's a giant prank and Operation Mindfuck itself, which is what, you know, he was involved in and Abby Hoffman trying to levitate the Pentagon and Paul Krasner saying that Lyndon Johnson penetrated JFK's exit wound with his, you know, <laughs> thing on, on the airplane in front of Jackie O. All this stuff. And from what I understood, this was like a almost like a situationist Dada-esque political prank to kind of try to destabilize a humdrum consensus to wake America up out of its consumerist trance and to get more playful. And I mean, what I've worried with Are You Serious on the show a couple of years ago when Trump was elected president was, well, did this experiment work too well? Are we so, because right now we're utterly destabilized, but without even going there yet, at the time, it was a kind of a, a form of political, mental, psychic activism, no? Oh, big time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was it was beyond the Discordians, though. Yeah. I mean, the 60s was that era of this sort of rebirth of the irrational. And, you know, magicians are alive and well. And um, we're going to poetically recreate the world and we're going to levitate the Pentagon. And, um, and it's great. Bob was there. He was there in 67. He smoked a joint on the steps of like, uh, you know, some national building. And he was like, I'm going to tell my grandkids about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but the notion of discordian upheaval, I mean, you said it right there. It was this Dada-esque sort of response, you know, discordianism was started by Greg Hill and Carrie Thornley and Thornley gets most of the attention because Thornley went crazy, you know, uh -huh. and he was also a great writer too. But Greg Hill was like this, uh, the brain in some ways of the operations. And he made it a point to, at one point, kind of switch gears and say, yeah, we kind of presented this as a religion, but this is more like an art piece. And he was really into male art, you know, sending art through the mail, which was a thing for a while, uh, making collages and sending them and stuff. And so I venture to say the Discordians are an art group like the Dadaists, right? And, uh, like the Dadaists in the beginning of the 20th century, that coming out of World War One, they believe that all this reason and rationality, what did it get us? It got us this horrible war where people are destroyed. And that's talking about World War One, not even World War Two, you know. And so their response was the only way to mess with this stuff is to create some sort of random factor. And the Dadaists didn't use that term, the Discordians did, mm -hmm. but they thought nonsense was the best response to this reason and rationality that's supposed to be making things better and look what it did to right. people. So they were inspired by them. That's great. And reason and rationality today would be like kind of techno-solutionism or letting AI control the world and do whatever's the most probable, best, <laughs> even if they have the equation, oh, this is the best outcome. We've calculated it. And it's like, uh, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> 100%. Right. Yeah. There's no room for the weird, for the anomalous, for the stuff that keeps us alive and human. You know, that someone like Bob would argue consciousness is... The fact that we're even consciousness is absurd. It's absurd that we're even alive and here and conscious. So you really want to 
end absurdity? No, 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 no. If you want more life and more stuff, you want to embrace it, enhance absurdity, right? <laughs> Pedal to the mm. metal on the absurd, right? <laughs> 100%. And that's what he said at the end, Bob, his last, his last message to the world was, I think death is absurd. Yeah. You know? Beautiful. He's like, I'm out. (laughs) Death is absurd. That's funny. Yeah, Timothy says, why not? (laughs) Why not? Oh, my gosh. It is. You look at that. You look at what Bob was navigating in terms of his life challenges, which is pretty much the greatest bad trip someone can imagine, right? Their own child being violently murdered. He, He dealt with the darkest of the dark that you could engage with and maintained a prankster ethic, right? Which means that he developed somehow he developed certain navigational skills you know and i've been having a really dark time myself lately and when i think about bob just even as a presence and i don't mean to deify him or gurify him or anything but bob what he learned what he transmitted through his existence was a father figure on the one hand an uncle bob but i feel like he's the he's kind of the benevolent uncastrated male figure that so many young men in particular could have used today to not go crazy Gamergate, QAnon, incel madness. In other words, there's there's a way of navigating all the conspiracy, all the confusion, all the destabilization. I feel like if Bob were around today, there might not be quite so much crazy. You know, that when I look at Twitter and the hate and the stuff going on, I feel like this is a lack of Bob. There's an obvious lack of Bob here. (laughs) 100%. Oh, 100%. Yeah, man. I mean, something weird about Twitter and social media things, websites, is they seem more anti-social media than social media. The way that it's sort of set up to begin with is, you know, from flame wars to just like people you never heard of. It's like having a conversation at a party and you're talking and someone just comes in and starts heckling you out of nowhere off the street. To me, Twitter feels like that in so many ways. And then two more people come in off the street and start piling on. And you're like, excuse me, I was just speaking to Doug here. Yeah. I don't even know who you are. And But isn't that sort of the construction of that stuff too? Yeah. Like, Haven't they done a lot of studies that conflict get is more sticky and people like want to fight about stuff, especially politics? And didn't Facebook do some crazy study that they never told anybody about in 2012 that they found that people can argue about politics? all day long and that'll keep them online Mm -hmm. you know and so it's kind of already constructed in the machine right like uh, in the programming data and it doesn't i mean i write things in e prime which is to take the is of identity out of what you're saying it just really takes the sting out of your tweets right yeah (laughs) e prime is a a way of constructing sentences that bob read in uh, alfred korzybski invented it. The guy who, uh, I think, who came up with um, general semantics that Bob was into. Um, Neil Postman was really into general semantics, too. They liked Korzybski and general semantics because he was looking for a kind of a post-rational, post-Aristotelian way of looking at the world. He's like, kind of like from Kant and all those guys. He's saying, we don't really see the world as it is. We just see our pictures of how we think the world is. So it's all a construct. So man, don't take these things too seriously. Realize that your semantics 
may be controlling or constructing your vision of reality as much as whatever's actually out there. So he wanted people to make sentences that didn't use the word is. So you would never like pull a dollar bill out of your pocket and say, this is money. Once you do that, you're all screwed up. What you want to do is pull the paper out of your pocket and say, we use this paper to represent money in our society. And then all of a sudden mm -hmm. it opens up what is and what isn't, you know? <laughs> so it's not money. It's something, it's, it's the social construction. And then mm -hmm. once you know it's a social construction, then everything becomes more, more flexible. We can start, now we can talk, now we can begin, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's part of Bob's life is, is, I mean, this is, he kind of disagreed with it when I told him this, when that I thought what he was sort of trying to say <laughs> was that everything is true and nothing is true. And he was like, no, there's stuff that's true. <laughs> he said, you misunderstood me, Doug. There's stuff, there uh, is real, there is real, real here. Yeah, well, that's the thing about Bob too, though, right? It's just like, he, like all of us, he, he's always um, updating his perspectives. You right. know? So when he was, say, interviewed by Richard Metzger in the late 90s at Metzger's early podcast, when, when you know, that sort of legendary interview of like Genesis Peorge, Metzger, and Bob. Mm -hmm. And in between the break, you know, Metzger was like, do you want to talk about Cosmic Trigger? Do you want to like get into stuff? And he's like, yeah, yeah, man. But like, look, I don't believe I don't think the same way anymore, mm -hmm. you know, but I don't want to ruin the experience for my readers, you know, like let them go through the journey themselves. So, you know, Bob in the 2000s, you know, he wasn't the same Bob in 1975, right? And right. so maybe in 75, he might have been a little more like, is it real? Who knows? What's real? You know, right. but uh, when it comes to Bob in 2002, 2003, you know, one thing is real. Pain is real. Pain is very real. Mm. You know, you can't think yourself out of pain sometimes, you know, people right. try, but... <laughs> right. And Bob know. had post-polio syndrome and knew from pain, you know? Yes, indeed. You know, and so he, like so many great teachers or those searching for the meaning of life in some ways, you know, how you learn to live with pain. How do you do that? You know, mm. and he was able to learn to live with pain while also staying, like keeping his mind open to these new sciences that might eliminate pain further down the line, right? And so some people say that, well, Bob really only got into the life extension stuff because his daughter was killed, right? And this was a psychological reason why he was so attached to the idea of life extension when that's not the case at all, man. Like, Bob was very aware that he was able to contextualize and own his shit very well. And I think his magic was his ability to know when he's projecting. And I think that's one of the troubles that has, one of the chapel perilouses that has occurred, especially with the media now, um, internet now, is we project all the time. We're projecting all the time. And mm. it's so much easier to project on some random person on Twitter, like that you don't even know. And it, that person may might not, not even be a real be a person. person. <laughs> <laughs> So it's all magic. We live in right. an even more magical environment than ever before. And uh, you said this one time that like, you know, the internet is like basically acid, you know, right. and uh, everyone's tripping, you know, but there's a big difference of knowing when you're tripping and right. knowing when you don't know when you're tripping, you know, someone could have right. dosed you like the old CIA guys used to do to each other, used to dose the shit out of each other and just watch, you know, until someone could figure out, oh, I get it. I'm tripping. Yeah. I'm tripping. Exactly. You That's why Leary said the net was going to be more powerful than acid. And I asked why. And he said, well, because acid, you've got to actually consume acid. 
for it to work. You've got to take a hit with the net. You don't mm. have to do anything. You know, it's just going to, and he knew it was just become the environment. It would supplant the environment and become this substrate on which humanity exists. But so if you can, and a lot of people use Bob's work as almost like a guide for tripsters, right? If you're going to become a psychedelic person or a counterculture person or a questioning person, you're going to need this uh, a compass. And Bob kind of serves as a compass, as a good guide, as an example, someone who's been through this terrain and you can use that. So now that we're all living basically tripping all the time, even people who are not accustomed to it and a a lot of people are having bad trips and believe in crazy stuff. Stuff that was Operation Mindfuck worthy conspiracy joke is now believed truthfully by millions of people, you know, who think that God knows what, you know, the Biden crime family is connected to the Rothschild lizard people, you know, just, my God, I mean, it, it's so off the charts. And and friends of mine who believed, you know, that the election was fixed through Jewish lasers from space and adrenal chrome drinking. And I mean, it's all people in Congress are full on, full on beyond the tinfoil people that were at our parties, even, you know, because they were at our parties. They were fine. They were just tinfoil people, you know, whatever <laughs> aliens, it's, it's protecting you from the CIA. God bless. Let's, you know, have a joint. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got along with them back then. So when so much of us are living there, do you see any way for us to utilize the lessons of Bob, what Bob brought? I mean, on the one hand, when I was talking with, are you serious? He's like, did we do was this a mistake? In other words, not was Bob a mistake, but was Operation Mindfuck a mistake? Did we give these cognitive weapons of silliness now that they've been embraced by the right? You know, Donald Trump is the closest thing to a discordian on some level. Yeah. Creating I'm just asking questions. I'm just saying, where was he born? We don't know. What if, that, how could, what if the birth certificate's not real? What if that videotape's not real? You know, you, you could keep going. I guess that's my question. How do we use Bob's wisdom today? How do we, do we deploy it? Is there a particular lesson that we can use and spread? In other words, we share the idea that if he were around today, he would be a useful asset for so many people who are confused. What do we do now? Well, yeah, so I, um, well, the first step probably is what he spoke about, uh, seeking to be as agnostic as possible, right? And uh, along with that agnosticism, you know, you need to really develop your critical thinking skills, and that takes work. And I think Bob, while he was alive for so many people, you know, him and Leary's books, I remember when I was coming up, you know, like, they were in Tower Records, right? Remember mm. Tower Records? Yeah. They had the book section, and these were the cool motherfuckers, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you had Leary, you had Bob, you had, like, Iceberg Slim, you had, you know, I guess what, that mixture of, like, low culture, quote-unquote, you yeah. know, books, but those were the Bob the Suburbs kid? remember him oh upski yes <laughs> love that guy love yeah. that guy read all those books man. yeah me too you know? and there was something about that like getting the bob book and then bring it into the bookstore and being like this is the real shit yeah you know not you know like and uh being raised by the counterculture in a way like you know hip-hop punk rock like techno right. stuff everything was all about like you know fuck the mainstream you know and then where it happened where i mean that's what metzger and all you guys are talking about like all that collapsed in the late 90s this notion of mainstream underground there's still a counterculture right. vibe that one can hold 
but they started, the corporation started running to the cool people and doing focus groups and then right. wanting to get your blah, 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 you know? And so, but my take is, dude, this is all old. This is all very old. And for me personally, like the Discordian operation mindfuck, was it too successful? See, this is where it comes in as them as artists, right? And when you're an artist, you anticipate and you comment on the times. There was already a thing, the CIA had already, Operation Mindfuck was started by intelligence agencies and the CIA loves Operation Mindfuck, you know, as, and this goes, Operation Mindfuck goes beyond the creation of the CIA. To me, it goes into the realm of just intelligence agencies. When Protocols of the Elders of Zion was written in 1903, it was a pure counterfeit. It was a pure fake, but it was an order to mess with people's minds. Right. It was created by the by the czarist of secret police, basically. Exactly. And so, you know, in the 60s, uh, you know, Seymour Hirsch, and his name is coming around again, yeah. he exposed Operation Chaos, you know. It's right there. And what was Operation Chaos? It was a CIA domestic spy campaign where they spied on thousands of Americans during the 50s and 60s when it's completely illegal for them to do that, you know. And so I think, you know, this but is why? where artists are kind of psychic too. Were they, were, they, you know? were they spying on like weird counterculture people or just regular housewives and businessmen? Well, what's interesting is how many housewives actually have gotten spied on in the past. Like the FBI loves spying on women, at least traditionally, in the Red Scares. And this is before the FBI, but the whole notion of like the first Red Scare in 1917, second Red Scare during the McCarthy era, like skipping around a little bit. But Bob and Arlen, you know, I have stuff in the book about how they were surveilled by the Chicago Red Squad in the 60s. And the Chicago Red Squad was this sort of strange uh, police department creation. But they were completely in tune with the FBI. And so one example is the Chicago Red Squad was somewhat behind the death of Fred Hampton, right? Mm. And so Bob was told when he was working at Playboy that he was had a record, he was being spied on by the Red Squad. I was able to access those records. And uh, Arlen was surveilled a lot because she was involved, a women's organization, I think it was called Women for Peace or something like that. It was a huge organization, but feminists were feared right. and watched a lot, which to me was kind of very interesting, you know, like, and bringing it back to like Bob as sort of this model of today or, or, or for people to not go down the incel, whatever. I'm so happy I found Bob in that regard because what is masculinity? That is a question of that Bob brings up. Yeah. And in this new era of interesting uh, gender bending stuff, you know, what is masculinity? He folds it out to what is being human? Well, you're a man who's doing good stuff. To me, you're masculine. Do you right. know what I mean? Masculinity, you got a little more testosterone. You might want to chop some wood and build a ditch, you know, be a man, you know, like, uh, or whatever, build something, right? I think what Bob's response to that is, don't stress it too much, man. Just be you, you know? And people have gotten caught in this conversation about what is it like being a, how do you be a man? And women are doing this. He brings it back to himself. It's like, what's right? You can only see accurately from the distance from your eye to your thumb. Everything else, <laughs> your mind is projecting, you know? So what does it mean to be a man these days is like, you got to go out and you got to live your life. That's what it's about. You know, be a hero, be a heroine of your own life, you know, be a transgender of your own life, you know, be human. 
That's the most important thing, you know, and all that other stuff about what's masculine and all this nonsense, I think gets, you know, swept aside. However, Bob did kind of get into that stuff a little bit at the end of his life. He did publish some articles for that newsletter Backlash. Right. I think he got into the notion of like androphobia. He was not a fan of the third wave radical feminist perspective. And uh, in the book, I think I kind of answered a little bit. He has his intellectual ideas, which make total sense, you know, when he's saying anyone who's seeking to group a whole bunch of people together with the is of identity sounds fascist to me, right? Which is what he accused some of these radical feminists of doing, you know, saying all men are, et cetera, et cetera, all white men are, et cetera, et cetera. You know, me as a white kid in hip hop, you know, that shit, people look at you like, ah, where are you from, man? You're some white dude. What's what's your story? I got all these projections I want to project onto you. So it's up to each individual to always like, to learn how to represent yourself and your most individual perspective, you know? And to me, that's what a big part of, of Bob's knowledge is, you know, but, you know, he changed over the years too i know but it's interesting so there's a a perceived masculinity crisis that to the rescue come everyone from jordan peterson to steve bannon right giving oh you're you know it's like uh there was a moment in 99 2000 when robert anton wilson for one there was a what was her name i was just looking her up um susan faludi she wrote a book she was a a feminist kind of sociologist person she wrote a book called stiffed the betrayal of the american man in 99 and they were basically people realizing that oh yeah, we are living in this sort of a toxic masculine world and stockbrokers are men and the and the madmen are men, but if every talk show and every Oprah Winfrey show is going to be people yelling at some white guys for what they're doing without providing kind of positive alternative things, this could end up kind of bad. In other words, you can't you can't even if there's been a problem a many century problem, it's going to be tricky to grow for young men to grow up in a world where they know that they're the enemy of a society and they might feel betrayed. They might backlash on a certain level. And I think Bob was sort of looking at that too. Just like, I mean, in my world, it was like, yeah, hackers, I get it. They're breaking into things, but don't criminalize them. There's a way to work with these young people. You know, So these, these dudes, mm-hmm. you want to be, be careful how you raise young men, you know, especially if they're watching the reformation of our society. So on the one hand, yeah, we can blame toxic masculinity and, and uh, the chalice and the blade and, and, you know, it's, it's centuries from the Pharaoh to Genghis Khan, you know, you take a dude and give him a little power and a harem and he won't stop. (laughs) They won't stop. There's no, there's no governance mechanism. There's no self-control. He will take, take, take and create yes people around until someone comes and conquers them. Another one of those dudes comes and conquers them. And all the rest of us are collateral damage. So I get that. But I feel like Bob was trying, saw what was coming on that level and offered some sort of alternative path. I think you're right. Just be human. That's why I went with team human. Just be mm. human. Connect with other people. It's it's good. You know, <laughs> it's good. I can't, it's like, it's all good. You know, it, it, it's, it's sometimes it's dangerous to say that to people now, but it's like, it's like, mm. it's all good. What you want? It's fine. That's just your kink, man. It's all, it's all, <laughs> go with it. I feel like that the Bob was so, that was the thing. He was so accepting. He was so 
of all the different aspects of himself, let this part of you wash through you. Oh, now you're a macho man. It's like the things you learn when you're tripping. You know, oh, I feel mm-hmm. robotic. You know, there was a great lesson and Timothy was trying to teach people how to trip in one of his books. And he says, all right, so if you're with someone and they're starting to have a bad trip, they said they feel like a robot. You know what you do? You go, oh, robots. What's that feel like? How does a robot move? Mm-hmm. I am a robot. I, you you let it in, in, let it through you and it'll pass to the next thing. You know, mm-hmm. And I feel like that sort of Bob's openness was sort of to that. To, that's the reality tunnel you're in right now. Well, explore that reality tunnel while you're there. See what you can learn. And you'll come out the other side. Don't worry. 100%. Yeah, I think. And that's something that we all need right now. You know, he was the person that friends called when they were having a bad trip. Yeah. Right. And then, like you said, like Leary helping the person going through it ground themselves in their five senses because you know you lose your mind and come to your senses you know how important it is to just breathe and just remember like i am here my body is here right now my mind could be going all over the place and uh I'm here right now. And it's a real interesting question of identity these days, right? And, um, you know, Bob is of that era where it's like, well, what is identity? People are stuck on, they're trying to say, I am this. Well, that's the Mm. ultimate is of identity uh, fallacy. You know, like, I seem to be this at this moment, but I exist in flux and I'm always constantly changing form and changing. If we're able to, like, start these conversations like that, which it seems like we've gone in the exact opposite direction, because I feel like the internet and social media, you know, has promoted this increased atomization, as you've written about, you know, and once you're atomized, and then you feel like, well, what's inside, right? And if you don't feel a spiritual connection to this greater whole, you know, which Bob did, you know, Bob didn't speak about a personified anthropomorphized God, you know, he everything was sort of this process, he was a process philosopher, you know, like, it was the Tao, and we're always changing form and consciousness changes as well. So people get stuck on positively identifying themselves, he represents the negative thinking part of things, what Herbert Marcuse spoke about, like the antithesis to people's thesis, right? By saying, oh, you are this? Well, let me break you down and show you how you're not what you say you are. You're just this constantly in flux being, and we're constantly struggling to come up with the words and the signifiers to accurately describe that all the time. And because, dude, even the internet, language, language is like acid. We're all yeah. tripping all the time because ah. we can't, we can barely describe the immense infinity of amazing yeah. things that's happening within us and outside of us. And we get stuck on these small perspectives. And then you go online and you start arguing with someone from that small perspective. Yeah. And sadly, I think the world has now reflected social media more and more when it should have been the other way around. You know, and what is your core identity? You're constantly in flux. And as you said, let these things wash through you and then see where the dust settles. You know, that's what I think. Yeah, it's all so plastic. I mean, ideally, it's interesting. You say there's a lot to this. I mean, 
when I think about Web3 and people used to interview me about Web3 and virtual reality and what it'll be like for humans if we migrate to there and how will we make meaning, I said, we already did this once with the invention of language. I mean, imagine what it was like for the one caveman who goes to the other tribe, a caveman without speech, and he goes to this other tribe and people are making mouth noises to each other and then going and doing stuff. It's like, what magic does that man have to make those noises and that person over there brings him food or makes fire? What spell is that, right? And now we just live in this linguistic universe where what you call me, your mother, your mother, you you made those mouth noises, now I'm going to have to kill you. Your mother. Oh, my mother, you're going to die, right? It's like, whoa, whoa, what just happened there? So there's there's that is really interesting to me. And then what you're saying, I just got in trouble actually a couple of weeks ago. I was musing only because someone was showing me proof of gender switching kind of like proof that okay here's scientific proof of this thing that happens in the womb if you've got these genes and then this thing happens and your something changes that's why we have proof now that's why you are a woman in a man's body here's the genetic we have the marker we have the thing we have that and it's like all right if you like to have that that's cool and all but i always want to say don't let that limit you either in other words, mm-hmm. just as I'm not going to let the fact that I'm X, Y, if I want, if I'm a woman, I've got my right to declare. You know, in other words, that in some ways it's disempowering to require scientific proof of oneself, right? <laughs> One's mm-hmm. identity. It's like, whatever, man. Irish Catholic, but you're a Jew. Welcome, Mishpucha. <laughs> yeah, you know, fine. You know, just, just, it's, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like this, and I get it. And Bob, I'm sure Bob would say, oh, wouldn't I have my scientist lab coat on? My scientist lab coat guy agrees with you. You have declared proof my you know my this mm-hmm. one says um, is interested to know well what are you going to think you are tomorrow and you have the perfect right and freedom to be a different gender every friggin hour do you, every hour right because these are these are this is you right yeah that's such a big question too man because i mean again how bob you know in, in cosmic trigger three which came out in 95 around or 94 he was writing about he's like i believe that there are biological differences between men and women mm-hmm. you know there men have more testosterone et cetera, et cetera, and these things influence life right for the most part for most people you could put them on sort of one side or another and one person might have more testosterone one day and more estrogen the next you know we you don't know Exactly. Yes, exactly. And, and so like if Bob had, you know, lived until today, I wonder what his perspective would be. Because I think that maybe some people, they might hear this and think that, oh, yeah, Bob, you know, Bob wrote for Backlash. Bob's down no. with the man. You know, he had criticisms of, of them, too. That's the thing. He had criticisms yeah. of everybody, Every, <laughs> you know, but that was the whole point. You know, it's like, it's like, what's it to you? <laughs> On a certain level. I mean, and that's why he would get in so much trouble all over the place. I mean, he was a troublemaker, <laughs> but that's why he had to maintain the identity of the clown in many ways. I mean, he was a scientist to us or a philosopher to us, but philosopher clown. Because if you're the clown, you're kind of protected <laughs> against, you know, it's harder for me because I'm not enough of a clown. It's harder for me to say like stuff I might about, you know, people's right to declare their gender at any moment they want to. It's like, oh, now people could, it's like, oh, well, Rushkoff's wrong about that. You, act, It's not, it, there is science, there's not science, there's, you know, whatever. He was really good at 
maintaining and accepting multiple perspectives at the same time. It's that, that mm-hmm. I always think of a Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof, where the one person makes this argument to him and he goes, he's right. And the other person makes the other argument and he goes, he's also right. And they said, mm-hmm. you know, and then they mm-hmm. said, how can they both be right? And he goes, it's tradition. You know, that's the, this is, that's the thing you're balancing. Of course they're both right. Mm-hmm. I love it. Great example. Yeah. I mean, like Bob in his own way, well, he was raw, right? Always raw with it, but he was non-dual in that respect, right? right? Like every identity we have is measured by our human perspective, our human chauvinism. You know, we're looking for life outside of planet earth, like, but we're looking for life that reflects what life looks like to us here. You know, I I wonder about that a lot. You know, like that there was once water on Venus or this planet is mostly gas. Does a consciousness exist that's alive there? You know, like we just can't tune it in at this moment, you know? And so again, we're constantly projecting. And I think that's one lesson I got from Bob was just like, just be aware that no matter what, you're constantly projecting. Just always be aware of that. You know, and that's helped in my life a lot. You know, yeah, and that's 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 Korzybski, the the structural differential that Korzybski that we were talking about before. That it's Mm -hmm. all that everything you think about the world is projection. It's based on five senses, but you can't help but project. You know, even the idea of that's a tree, you know, we now we know that's not a tree. That's the above ground part of a vast network of organisms, right? Yeah. That's not mm-hmm. a mushroom. That's the cap of a, you know, thousand mile piece of mycelia. It's like, oh, dude. And it just flips it on its head, right? And that's what he did. That's what yeah. he was so brilliant at doing, you know, and that's what's so inspiring about him as a writer, as a thinker, that he is able to do that constantly to break open your brain. And it's like, oh, that's not, that's the word I'm using for a tree. And it's actually, you know, as he said, he would break things down operationally, right? Like this mm-hmm. is not money. This is a thing that I use to get things, et cetera, et cetera. And in so doing those exercises to people who are not, I can understand how Bob, the way some people really love Bob and some people are like, man, I'm good, you know, because like <laughs> he had a specific way of, of breaking things down. And if, if you're on that wavelength, I mean, it's just endless, inexhaustible, fun, philosophically amazing, inspiring and enlightening to, to read this guy, you know? And I mean, that's why I wrote this book about him. This was like my final lesson with my teacher Mm. because he was that, he was definitely like a guru, right? The anti-guru guru. guru. And of course he never wanted that. Who does, right? Unless you're a crazy narcissist and you need money, right? Like what he was teaching people to do, I think is like, of course you get labeled like a guru for that. The guy was just a great teacher, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. And 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 in case people are interested in reading, uh, not just Chapel Perilous, your terrific biography, but Bob's work, it's very. I don't easy is not the right word, but it's very easy reading. It's straightforward. This is not like some weird philosopher dude. It's. I mean, it might be challenging emotionally and philosophically and personally to you as you, you know, as the stories go in. The same way, uh, 
you know, a, a, a great movie, but it's not like reading Finnegan's Wake or something. This is not hard. Although he loved Finnegan's Wake. It's just like, it's much more like reading a Neil Postman or me or somebody. It's really straightforward, very personal. Uncle Bob's just going to talk to you about, oh, well, I was doing this and I was doing that. And this guy said this. And and then you'll think about this planet and look at what it's doing. And and there's a great, I don't forgot the name of the guy. You know, they have um, Cosmic Trigger, the book is on as an audio version of it. Mm. And they got this actor guy to read it who sounds a lot like Bob. It's mm. this guy with this kind of Bronx accent or something. It's just this nice. very straightforward. Uh, it's a really nice way to experience uh, to experience those stories. It's approachable. It's approachable. And your book is really approachable too. I mean, I, I feel like it's probably more important to those of us who were impacted by Bob than to total newbies because it's like, Oh, there's so much for people who've experienced different aspects of his work to see who he was. And I mean, to read about the various apartments that in that his family was jammed into and health issues and money issues and jobs and things and him basically burning the midnight oil to keep a sigil going while he's, you know, working all day at a, a hack job. It's really important because, man, you think it. You think we have it hard, you know? This is the way it, this is the way it is, you know? It's just mm. precarity is kind of part of the game. Especially as an artist in America, increasingly so, you know, as an independent sort of artist. And uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things with the book. And I wondered about that. Like, who's going to read this? Where's the reach? <laughs> you know, and of course, there's a ton of Bob fans are like, yo, I can't wait for this. And I'm really thankful for that. You know, I do want the book to be able to reach new audiences, people who read biographies, you know, and they just want to read a biography about an artist, right? Mm. Uh, you have to apply some sort of structure to someone's life because I created a map. And as Korzybski yeah. said, the map is not the territory, right? Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to write a full biography about anybody, you know, because there's the external things, the who, what, when, where, and why, uh, well, the who, what, when, where, you know, movements through space and time. But to really get inside someone's head, like as I tried in that first uh, draft was, you know, that's, I don't think you can, you know, I mean, I as a writer, and this is where I go in on myself, like, you know, we're always constantly learning how to write better. And how do you express such amazing thoughts in brief, hard hitting, erudite lines, you know, and this is where he was a great writer in that regard, you know, in that sort of tradition of Hemingway, in a certain sense, you know, like, he didn't write flowery language, right? He was completely influenced by that post-World War II, like, just get to the point, man, you know, and, but he did it in such a great and entertaining recontour way, right? You know, I tried to emulate that a little bit, but you also have to write from your own voice, you know, and, uh, mm. like, I tried to just tell his story through my perspective, which, like, Bob's a hero, you know, yeah. like the guy is a hero. It just as uh, Ulysses Bloom is a hero of James Joyce's Ulysses. Like, what does it mean to be a hero these days, right? It's like the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD, right? PTSD uh -huh. is one event that messes you up for the rest of your life. But complex PTSD, as they're saying, is like, is water torture, one drop at a time. You know, like, well, what does it take to be a hero when you're doing it one little step at a time? You know, like comparing Bob's life to Leary's life, you know, Leary was a rock star shot out of a cannon. He was dealing with these huge yeah. things. 
Bob had to sustain, he had to persevere, you know, he had to deal with reading letters that he wrote like in the 80s. This is after Illuminatus, this is after Cosmic Trigger, like when he just moved to Ireland with Arlen and he's having a great time, but then he'd go through major depression. Like, mm. and, and it was all to him, as he say to his friend, like, I think this is all related to money and feeling broke. And it's like, I got to go get a regular job now. How am I going to do this? You know? And mm. then luckily in came Ken Campbell with his yellow submarine, scooped Bob up and brought him from Ireland to England for a quick rendezvous and meeting with all these highfalutin executives and, and, and theater people. And boom, things got going again with Bob. And these are sort of the things I wanted to just kind of like highlight in the book that if you choose this path, you know, the road less traveled, if you will, you're crazy enough to want to be a writer. Like these, look at Bob, look at the things that he encountered, right? And just how he just stayed the course, you know, and um, while not being a jerk, you know, like, hey, look, we all go through stuff. Bob also could be a jerk to people here and there, you know, like as we all can, but he didn't completely lose his shit, right? Mm. And there was a method that he practiced, you know, like he was through one depression. I think that he had, I didn't really, I didn't psychoanalyze Bob in the book. I didn't want to do that, you know, like, but I do think that he had some sort of um, manic, maybe depressive sort of thing going on because in the mid seventies, like his cycles were maybe like every seven years or 10 years. So in the mid seventies before Luna was killed, you know, he just wrote a ton of stuff, like one after another, he was Mm. just like killing it and, and teaching classes and doing all these things. And then he tells Greg Hill in a letter, like, oh, I got hit with such depression for three weeks. I couldn't even write. Like I couldn't think things without crying. You know, and it's like, wow, this is Robert Anton Wilson saying this? You know, Doug, the first time I met Bob was at the Disinfo conference, right? And it was backstage. And I was like, holy shit, I'm hanging with Robert Anton Wilson. And he's there smoking cigarettes. And I'm like, this guy smokes cigarettes, you know? And I'm like, what's up, Bob? And he's like, oh, man, it's good to talk to you. He's like, I get such stage fright, you know, like, and I smoke a lot beforehand. And I'm thinking in my head, I was like 19. I was like, how the fuck do you get stage fright? Like, you're Robert Anton fucking Wilson. Everyone here loves you. But that's just what it is. Like the imprinting perhaps he received, right? Growing up hard in Brooklyn, you know, poor in Brooklyn, you know, where he was abused like physically, you know, by his mom, the nuns at school, other kids being jerks. Like there are just things that we can't always process, right? And so we would do the best we can with them, you know? And uh, Bob, what he learned how to do was heal himself for the most part, right? So he weaned himself off taking a lot of antidepressants or anti-anxiety pills, right? By doing a lot of acid, (laughs) magic, reading Nietzsche and smoking a lot of weed. And here we are in 2023, all these medical studies coming out about the benefits of LSD on depression, you know, psychedelics for depression and anxiety, OCD, you know what I mean? Like, so he figured out these ways to just like on the road less traveled, how to heal himself and then how to help others heal themselves when they're taking similar adventurous, dangerous paths with their lives. You know, McClellan said, it's the business of the future to be dangerous. We live in Mm. dangerous times, man. You know, like, so you gotta be sharp, you know, 
and you, you got to know your shit and, but you can figure out ways to help heal yourself. And I think that's what I tried to really get through with the book was he's a hero for these reasons, right? And it's not a critical biography of Bob. There are things that I could have wrote, uh, written to make it somewhat so, but I think Bob, before he gets roasted, like he needs to get toasted because yeah. <laughs> the guy never got it so much in his life. Yeah. The one major time that, I mean, of course he got it in micro elements of people being like, you're awesome. But he was going for the gusto in his career. He dreamed of yeah. Illuminatus trilogy being made into a huge hit movie. And, but he finally did get something and you played a huge part in that. You know, when mm. you put the word out that Bob was near death and he was almost evicted from his, possibly could be evicted from his apartment, right? And uh, I still remember reading that, Doug. I remember reading that email, you know, I was living in Brooklyn and I was like, one, I was shocked that like, you know, how does this guy who's so great, how is he struggling for cash like this? And, uh, but second, it was like, fuck yeah, this guy needs our help. You know, Doug put the word out, you know, let's give him some money. And according to Christina, his daughter, $123,000 approximately came in in five days. Yeah. You know, that's insane to me. That's he won the lottery. Yeah. This was before GoFundMe and all that kind of stuff, right? I send an email to my mailing list, and then uh, Boing Boing posts it on there, and I stuck it on my blog, and um, yeah, and we just put his daughter's PayPal out there. <laughs> That's it. It's like Bob needs our help. It was like, oh man, uh, yeah, it was nice to see that, and yeah, and he he felt him. I think more than the money, he felt embraced. He realized that we are. We love him, that we love Bob. I remember he called me, he was like crying, you know, that it was such a, he's just so moved, you know, for us to mm. do that. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And, you know, and you're living the example as well, you know, taking what, 10, 12 years on this project? Mm. Well, I guess officially like seven. Seven years? Officially seven. Yeah. yeah. But to keep pushing, you know, I get emails all the time. What do I do? I've been trying for a year and I can't. Seven mm. years on, off, just stay alive and keep doing it. And that's, that's where it is, you know? And, and on some level trust, you know, I hate to say it, trust the universe. It'll, it'll happen one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. I agree, man. I think, well, the book doing the book became like one constant to keep going to as life sort of crumbles around you. It became like a life raft, you know, just sitting at the desk and, and working on this thing. And I'm glad that it was about it was a great way to writing a biography about someone I found is a good way to basically get better as a writer, but to learn to ground yourself as a writer, the whole practice and method of it. Because yeah, man, like I say, I got a book deal with Penguin or whatever, like that wasn't for a lot of money, you know, and then for Strange Attractor, also not for a lot of money. I'm grateful, so grateful for getting any money for it. But, you know, I I remember I interviewed Bob 20 years ago, man, in July 24th, 2003, the day after the Maybe Logic premiere in uh, Capitola or in Santa Cruz. But I was at his apartment in Capitola and, you know, he just said it during the interview. He's like, he's like, writing is labor. Like, this is work, mm. man. <laughs> like, yeah. he's like, we don't get paid enough for our straight up labor of it. You know, and Eric Bogosian, the great playwright, actor, 
one man show guy, you know, he wrote a book after all these years of doing all this great one man show stuff. And he's like, this was hard. This was one of the hardest <laughs> things I've ever done. You know, just the act of physically sitting at a desk all day and doing yeah. this, you know. I know. I realized that. I was writing the last book because I always say each book, this is the last one I'm going to do. But this last one, uh, Survival of the Richest, I realized, you know, while there's fun in it, it's torture. It is torture because you're so alone. You got to write alone. Even if you get someone else in the same room, you're alone in your thing, struggling to make this thing. It's way harder than it looks at the end. You just think, oh, you just sat down and typed this. It's like, oh, man, it's brutal. It's mm-hmm. brutal. But uh, but you did it, man. You did it. And it's great. And I really, I take the lessons on depression and anxiety really seriously. I know I, I uh, in my email list, I said, I've been going through some challenging times lately. I'm going to be answering email less and all. And a lot of people wrote me right away. I'm concerned about you. Are you okay? You know, I got a couple of texts even while we were talking. Are you okay? We all get it, man. It comes in waves, you know? And I had one of my hard ones, you know, this last two, three weeks, just where you can't write, you don't want to answer a single email, every task is just like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, and um, you got to just be, you know, be in it, be in it, keep doing what you could do and connect with other people. And then this, for me, I mean, this is the life's blood, you know, is to connect with you about our shared love of Bob and strange experiences and mutual recognition of the great challenge that that living life this way as best we can presents us and the necessity of finding the others. You know, one of the beautiful things about writing this biography was you got to speak to so many people in the world of Bob, you know, which must have been, man, a really it's a great excuse <laughs> right. to connect with you. You're doing a book on Bob. Of course I'll talk to you. Yeah, you know, man. it's great when the work affords those kind of connections. It's just, then you're obligated to then sit and figure out how to <laughs> incorporate it all into a single coherent volume, which you did chapel perilous, the life and thought crimes of Robert Anton Wilson by Gabriel Kennedy forward by Grant Morrison and an introduction by yours truly, it's from Strange Attractor Press or in the U.S. It's going to be MIT Press. Uh, published November 7th, 2023, oh. which seems so far away. Well, that's the MIT version. Maybe the U.K. one is earlier. But just pre-order it now because it makes good things. And who knows when it will actually come? Maybe sooner? Well, yeah, I think it's actually, I was told now it's going to be February 2024. Ah, releasing well, order it, it now anyway. Yeah, yeah. Order it <laughs> now. Who knows what will come to you? How do they find out about you, Gabriel Kennedy? You got a website like Propanon or something? Yeah, I have uh, two websites. One is uh, propanon.com, but P-R-O-P-Anon.com, right? And then also chapelperilous.us, where I mostly discuss uh, Bob-related stuff on that website. And then I have my Medium page, which I'm putting up more articles and stuff now. could also just YouTube propping on youtube took down a couple of my videos though which was a little rough (laughs) they're good songs man but they took them down (laughs) and uh but yeah those are the two sort of main things propping chapelperilous.us all right and we'll put all the links to all your stuff at teamhuman.fm also well shoot gabe it's great to have an excuse to speak with you. That's the greatest thing about Team Human. Heck Get yeah, to talk man. to people. <laughs> but let's talk anyway in real life. Let's hang out. You're not that far. Not that far, man. I'll be around in New York for a little while, so maybe we can link up sometime soon. Excellent. 
Well, I love you, man. I'm glad you found me. And I found you. <laughs> Likewise, bro. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Gabriel Kennedy, author of the upcoming book, Chapel Perilous, The Life and Thought Crimes of Robert Anton Wilson. You can find out more about him and the book at chapelperilous.us or just come to teamhuman.fm and check out all the links to Gabe, Propanon, and the new book. Team Human was produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. It was actually made possible by all of you. Thanks for being on Team Human. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.